I'm going to go very fast this evening. It is just a superficial review of the entire Sermon on the Mount, 111 verses, broken up into 21 lessons of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a wonderful privilege to have in writing the Sermon on the Mount, in which the blessed and only potentate came to this earth and taught. And we have it in writing, and may we all humble ourselves before it tonight. I read in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, And here we go. Sermon on the Mount. Let's introduce it very quickly. It is a glorious summary of pure Christian doctrine. It's not for the millennium, as some restrict it. I brought my Schofield reference Bibles tonight that say that Matthew 5 through 7 is for the millennium. It's the constitution for the Jewish state that's going to be established after the Lord returns. It's not to replace or modify Moses' law or the Old Testament. Jesus is not changing the Old Testament. He's just explaining it. It was to a very large group of disciples and people. It was in a mountain and Jesus sat, and thus the name of it, the Sermon on the Mount. With a great crowd, Jesus did not preach John 3.16, nor did Jesus preach anything even close to John 3.16. He taught strict, personal righteousness and holiness as the grounds for any entrance into heaven. He overthrew Jewish doctrine, he overthrew Jewish practices, And he overthrew Jewish teachers and said so in this sermon. Sexual thoughts are a subject dealt with, swearing, savings, enemies, and many more. This is pure Christianity, and it's the evidence of eternal life according to the Bible. You heard Psalm 15 on Sunday from Nathan. This is the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, expanding those few verses into 111. The same thought. He that doeth these things shall never fall. His house will abide the storms of even the day of judgment. These are the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's Son preached the greatest sermon to mankind through His church in the Middle East in 27 AD. What will you do with the Son of God by His words in this sermon? What will you do with Him tonight? And what will you do with the words of the Son of God? We have to come to terms with the Son of God Himself, and we have to come to terms with the words of the Son of God. Let's go to the Beatitudes. We're going to go fast. The first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5 deal with the Beatitudes, and Beatitudes mean blessings. And the the blessings actually describe the character of true disciples. You know, there are verses like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a totally different description from what men aim for in their lives, where they aim to be proud in spirit. And there are so many churches proud in spirit. But we want to be poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the peacemakers, the Bible says, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. See, those are descriptions, like Psalm 15 was, of the character of true disciples. And there's ten of them. 
and they describe holy living by these character traits of the righteous. Poor in spirit, mourners, meek, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted, and falsely accused and reviled by our enemies. These truths are what you should crave and pursue. These traits are what you should crave. You want to have this character. You want to line up. As this sermon is opened, Jesus starts off with the word, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The haughty Pharisees, the liberal Sadducees, the scribes, the priests, the zealots, the Herodians, Theirs was not the kingdom of heaven. It was the poor in spirit that gathered in a mountain to hear the Lord Jesus Christ. What about their influence? And what influence do you have on those around you? God saved His children for His glory and others' profit. That's why He left us here. True Christians should live publicly to help others. Salt. Ye are the salt of the earth. Salt is a purgative It's a preservative, it's a destroyer, and it's a seasoner, and we should be all those things in our lives. We're also called, you're the light of the world, and we should be as visible as possible. You don't take a light and put it under a bed or under a shade. You want to expose it on a hilltop. And you young people should remember this from one of your retreats. You can glorify God in heaven everywhere you go by living out the Sermon on the Mount. This is the Lord Jesus Christ teaching His pure religion without interruption. Three chapters long. It's all in the red writing. They're the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does everyone at BMW know that Matthew Crosby's a Christian? Does everyone at the dentist's office where his wife works knows that she is a Christian with cheerful contentment and godliness in everything that she does? That's one couple in our church, and it should be true of all of us. Number three, the law of God. What was Jesus relative to the law of God, and what was he preaching in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus had to head off the accusations that would arise or questions about what he was saying, because he he is going to say a number of times, but I say unto you, but I say unto you. But he was far from destroying the Old Testament. He would fully fulfill it. I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, Jesus Christ said. He identified greatness by the least commandments. He that heareth and doeth the least of these commandments is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. People call us nitpickers. We're too strict. We're legalists. They can call us whatever they want. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 19 tells us that the great ones are those that hear and teach and do the least of His commandments. Because we're not going to let anything fall through the cracks. If you do not outlive the Pharisees, Jesus said, you are in serious trouble about ever making it into heaven. If your righteousness does not exceed their righteousness. Let us be sticklers for every word and jot and tittle. This is the place in the scripture where jot and tittle is used. Jot in Greek is the jod letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which if you have a Bible with lots of details, Psalm 119 in verse 73 Psalm 119 and verse 73 will show you a jod, that letter of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and it's just a dot on the page of your Bible. A tittle is just a little accent mark on a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And yet Jesus said, there won't be a jot or a tittle 
that'll fall from this law until it's all fulfilled. Murder. What does Jesus Christ teach about murder and the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill? Jesus did not correct Moses. He fulfilled the law, as we've already heard. But here's what it sounds like. Matthew 5.21 Ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you. So there's a contrast being made. Ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time. Jesus didn't say, It is written, but I say unto you. He is not comparing himself to Moses. He is comparing himself to the Pharisees and the scribes that took Moses and corrupted Moses by limiting the commandment, Thou shalt not kill, to the literal, overt act of killing a person. He is not correcting Moses. He just finished saying, I am not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. But I say unto you, because he's contrasting himself to those who have said something about the law from old time, the rabbis of the Jews, primarily since the Babylonian captivity and what they did to the word of God. Jesus corrected Pharisees. He did not correct Moses. He corrected Pharisees. They were sinfully too lax by limiting that commandment to just literal murder. Anger without a cause is murder to Almighty God because the next verse says in Matthew 5.22, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. That is the Lord Jesus Christ reopening up the sixth commandment to include all that God ever intended in it. This is pure religion. This is not some little string of commandments that you can put on a schoolhouse wall and expect little children to memorize and understand. They come to the sixth commandment and it says, Thou shalt not kill. They need to be taught the Sermon on the Mount. That anger without a cause. Calling a brother raka. Calling a brother a fool without a cause. Is violation of the sixth commandment. Think of backbiting. Think of bitterness, envy, grudges, hate, and those issues that arise in the human heart that lead toward murder. They're all included. Just like being angry without a cause is included by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage goes on to say, this section right here, number four, the lesson about murder. You need to be reconciled to your brother and get all differences out of the way before you come and worship God. You leave your sacrifice and you go run to your brother and make sure that you two are united. Because God will not accept worship where you are not reconciled because this commandment, thou shalt not kill, goes as far as peaceful relationships with everyone. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the religion of of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Adultery is covered in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Jesus did not correct Moses. He fulfilled the law. He corrected the Pharisees. Here's what it sounds like. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. That's the old rabbis of the Jews. That's not Moses. Moses didn't do talking. Moses came down from Mount Sinai 
with tables of stone written in by the finger of God that said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus is not appealing to that. He's appealing to men that have had an interpretation of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Matthew 5.28 This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the King of the universe teaching His pure religion and how we ought to live. Sexual fantasies are as bad as the actual sinful act according to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Pharisees limited adultery to the literal overt act of being married to one person and going to bed with another person that you weren't married to at the same time. But Jesus said, if you even look on a woman to lust after her for sex, you're guilty of the seventh commandment. You should get rid of any temptation, even if it's costly. Here's where we have two verses that say, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off and cast it from you. In the light of sexual sins and fantasies. If there are things that lead you to temptation, men, women, cut them off. Pluck them out. Get them out of your life. You wouldn't lose anything if you threw away your television. Most divorces, Jesus goes on, this is summarizing lesson number five about adultery. Most divorces are just an abuse of God's law in order to commit adultery. It's just trying to use the law of God to get around the fact that you want another woman. And so the Pharisees would say, but didn't Moses write in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, that a man can put away his wife? And Jesus would respond by saying, it was not so from the beginning. And he would quote Genesis chapter 2. This is adultery. Thoughts, abuse of laws, even scriptural laws to justify getting another woman or another man. Swearing. Jesus did not correct Moses. Jesus is correcting Pharisees. Because for swearing it says, Again, ye have heard that it hath been said. Notice how carefully Jesus is describing his opponents. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself. You shouldn't make an oath and not keep it. But shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, and he goes on and describes his rules for swearing. They had ridiculous ideas of swearing. Do you remember what the Pharisees would do? They would let you swear by the temple of the living God, and it wouldn't matter. But if you swore by the gold of the temple, oh, you better keep that oath. That's in Matthew chapter 23. That is the hypocrisy of men corrupting the word of God, and this is in his church. He's not preaching to the Hittites, the Philistines, Egyptians, or Syrians. He's preaching to the Jews. We reject Mennonites. We reject Jehovah's Witnesses and their heresy against all oaths because there are oaths found by the best of men in both Testaments. And swearing with the name of Jehovah God is an act of worship and God delights in us swearing by Him because when we swear by Him, we are confessing that He is the greatest authority in the universe to add credibility to our words. 
And that's what it says in Hebrews chapter 6 as to why God Himself swore when making a covenant with Abraham about the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not go with these people because they do not understand the Bible. We only swear in Jehovah's name and we only swear for serious matters. We do not swear for little things. They have to be very serious like when we're in court and we say, so help me God. That's an oath. We guard against any expletives or implied swearing by words that we use like expletives or to add force and weight to our words. Swearing is lesson number six from the Sermon on the Mount. Guarding our mouths. This is the Lord Jesus Christ telling us to guard our mouths carefully. Then revenge comes up. Verses 38 through 42. Ye have heard that it hath been said... An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, are those words, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, were they written by Moses in the Old Testament? Yes. But notice, Jesus doesn't appeal to the fact that they were written because He's appealing to the false interpretation of those words. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus did not correct Moses. Jesus corrected Pharisees. They misapplied Moses' civil laws for private revenge. Oh, if you wronged a Pharisee, he had scriptural justification to seek you out and get his pound of flesh out of you. And on what basis would he do that? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which was only given to civil magistrates. It was only given to those in charge of the nation's laws. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's Moses implementing the statutes of the state against criminals. An eye for an eye is true, but it's only for magistrates. It's not for personal use. Jesus taught instead turning your cheek when someone smites you on a cheek. There's no harm done if someone hits you on the cheek. Give him your other cheek. There's no lasting damage done. What's the only thing that's hurt when someone smacks you on the cheek? Thank you. Pride. He talks about giving away cloaks. If someone sues you for your coat, throw in a cloak as a good gesture. If a Roman soldier wants you to carry his equipment for a mile, how far should you go with him? Two. He did not alter civil law. He stopped personal revenge. Jesus still believes that civil magistrates should enforce an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But individual men shouldn't do that. Lesson number eight. Enemies. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. (laughs) Yeah, that's a real corruption, Pharisees. You've heard that. Remember, Jesus didn't correct Moses. I have to keep doing this. I want you to understand. You're learning something right now. Jesus is not correcting Moses. The New Testament is not a milder form of the Old Testament. Jesus is expanding the Old Testament to the breadth that it always had when properly understood. The Jews loved to limit their neighbor to their friends so they could hate their enemies. Do you remember how Jesus answered the question, Who is my neighbor? He told the story of a wounded Jew in a ditch and a Samaritan finding him. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. So that lesson by the Lord Jesus Christ is very weighty. You are to love your enemies. Those that you think have wronged you. 
those that may be in the process of hurting you. You are to love them, pray for them, and do good to them. True love of neighbor includes your personal enemies, as I just said. God shows this kind of love all the time with His Son and with His reign. And that's what's in these verses in Matthew chapter 5. To be God's perfect, and it says, Be ye therefore perfect, if you want to be perfect, Learn to be gracious and merciful and forgive anybody anything. Forgive everybody everything. Just forgive them if you want to be perfect. And if you want to be the children of God, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. This is exciting. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes from heaven and tells us how we can be the children of our Father in heaven and tells us how we can be perfect, don't you want to do it? This is pure religion. Loving your personal enemies. This isn't being a pacifist when it comes time for war. We're not Quakers. Quakers haven't figured out anything in the Bible. We're Christians. We will defend our nation. And we'll defend it with vigor. Enemies. These are your personal enemies. You must love them. So taught the Lord Jesus Christ as we come to the end of Matthew chapter 5, 48 verses. Giving. Matthew chapter 6. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men. Godly giving never has human praise as its motive. When you give, you are giving to the Lord because you love Him and you want Him to have some of what He's given you. God's reward, and it's always a reward, God is so gracious, He doesn't even have to talk about a reward because we should give to Him if He never gave us back anything. But God's reward for giving is lost if you give for men. Giving is not new. It was part of the law. It was taught back there, as you know, from the books of Moses and from the book of Proverbs. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. Hebrews 3 and verse 9 tell us. Alms, or charity, toward the poor are only for legitimate acts of God that He approves of, because that's taught throughout the Bible. We don't give people what they want. We give people what they need, and those needs are very limited by the Bible. Giving money for toys for tots is not taught in the Bible and doesn't do a thing between you and the Lord. Those aren't alms. That's just a ridiculous waste of money for a frivolous, pleasure-mad society. Jesus condemned Pharisee publicity only. When he said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, he's only condemning the publicity of the Pharisees by his example that would blow with a trumpet to announce the fact that they were about to hit the offering plate. Because we know that when we come over to the book of Acts and we have a spirit-filled church, Acts chapter 4 tells us names and properties that were sold and they came and laid down the money publicly to the apostles And they were known in all the churches. Giving. Remember, we're racing through this for you to get an appreciation for all the lessons of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's covering everything for our lives almost. It's a wonderful breadth of this sermon. And he's doing it with authority. He, He just ridiculed the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish leadership for their public giving. Prayer. Lesson number 10. Godly praying cannot have a motive to be seen of men. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, 
for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets. Uh-oh. You know, the crowd there knew exactly who did that and who was known for that. The same ones that like to tie Scripture around their arms and make large the borders of their garments called phylacteries so that they would be known as religious men. God's reward for praying is lost, just like almsgiving, if you pray to be heard or seen of men. Jesus went on to reject repetitions like the rosary. Use not vain repetitions like the heathen. How did Jesus know? In Matthew chapter 5, that there would arise a Christian denomination in His name that would use vain repetitions. Four to six hundred years before there was a Roman Catholic church. You've got to see a Catholic with a rosary. Those that work at St. Francis Hospital, do you ever see a rosary? It's got 55 beads. You're supposed to say 50 Hail Marys and only five Our Fathers which art in heaven. And you're supposed to go through it three times for a total of 165 prayers. God already knows what you have need of, Jesus said. I don't need your repetitions. The Lord's Prayer is what we have here. It's what it's commonly called. So we'll call it what it's commonly called. The Lord's Prayer is for the right manner of praying, not for the words. We just don't memorize the prayer and pray it every time we get together in this church because we're supposed to pray with our understanding. But it's the manner of praying, and Jesus said that. Pray after this manner. You must forgive others for God to forgive your sins. Do you know that in the Lord's Prayer, you have these words in it? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now in case you might not have thought that that clause in the Lord's Prayer was sufficient, when Jesus ended the prayer, He then added these words of explanation. He didn't add anything for the fact about God's kingdom or our Father being in heaven. He added this explanation. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That is the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he thinks you should be asking about and thinking about in his manner of praying is about the forgiveness of sins, that your forgiveness of others is necessary for God to forgive you. I would hope, and I would like to pray and dream, that in this church we would have one great contest of emulation to where we would covet and earnestly strive to be the most forgiving member in the whole church that will forgive anyone for anything at any time. Everyone, everything, they possibly do all the time because that's what Jesus taught. That's a high standard for religion. It's a wonderful standard. You know, we love 1 John 1, nine, but 1 John 1, nine is absolutely worthless if you haven't been forgiving everyone your brother from your heart. Fasting is similar to the almsgiving and praying. Fasting cannot have a motive to be seen of men. God's reward for fasting is lost if you pray to be seen of men. So, Jesus Christ taught, make efforts to appear the very opposite of fasting, 
Wash yourself carefully. Anoint yourself so that you don't look at all like you're fasting. Isn't that wonderful? What does the great Christian religion of the Catholics do? And we're just about to hit that period of time. They practice Lent. Fast like Lent with ashes on the forehead are devilish. It's a ridiculous fast anyway. It's contrary to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And they put ashes on their forehead to show everybody that Catholicism actually comes from Hinduism. You need to go read a little bit about why Hindus have that dot right there between their eyes and why that is where Catholics put their ashes and that is where Catholics are baptized. It's a whole field of study. Jesus assumed that fasting was for effective praying, and so he assumes fasting. This is his religion. When the greatest preacher in the universe, the blessed and only potentate, takes the pulpit and preaches the greatest sermon, he assumes that his hearers fast, and he tells them how. Lord, help us. Treasure. Where's your treasure? Your ambition and your investments should be toward heaven. The things you do, the efforts you put forth, should be toward laying up treasures in heaven. For one reason Jesus gave, there are many earthly enemies of earth's investments, like moths, rust, and thieves. Your investments prove where your heart actually is. When you come and tell us in this church by a testimony, or you come and sit in a pew with us, that does not tell us where your heart is. What tells us where your heart is, is the amount of effort and the amount of affection and the good works that are piling up in your name. That's what tells us where you are. Your investments in the kingdom of heaven. So you, need, you want to set your affection, you want to set your efforts, and you want to stockpile good works that are done for heavenly purposes, for spiritual good ends, for the benefit of other saints. All treasures here are not wrong. We can have a savings account, and we can have investment accounts, because some are required, but the emphasis shows where our heart is. Single-minded. Matthew 6 and verse 22 sounds like this. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single... Thy whole body shall be full of light. We want focused eyes on one, one object. We are single-minded people, and the Lord Jesus Christ gets the preeminence. We only serve our master as a submaster under our master in heaven. Jesus hated the hypocrisy and the duplicity of Pharisees, who had more than one goal. He wants a single eye focused on one object, The eye directs the body, therefore it must be single, or your body is going to be confused because it won't know where to go. It is not just foolish to have two goals. It's not just foolish. It's impossible. No man can serve two masters, Jesus said, especially when those two masters are antithetical to each other. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. You've got to make one subordinate to the other. True disciples hate competitors. That is, competitors to Jesus Christ. Whether it be your job or your wife. Whether it be your children or your houses. Whether it be your lands or your parents. They hate competitors. And they know that losing their lives for Christ's sake truly leads to finding their lives 
because they're single-minded for Him. Worry. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25, Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life. Well, now we have to take some thoughts for our lives. We have to get an education to get a transferable skill to make a living to provide for our families and to have some left over for the people of God. So we understand that within some limitations. God will take care of true disciples without worry. That no thought for your life is no worrisome, anxious, fearful thought for your life. God will take care of you. Put your focus on Him and He will provide the things you need. The no thought is condemning worry. Examples in creation prove God's faithful providence. He mentions the fowls of the air. He mentions the lilies of the field. If God is able to clothe the grass of the field better than Solomon was ever arrayed, I think He can provide your clothing. And I speak as a fool because we know He can provide our clothing. God already knows you have need of all these things of life. Isn't that wonderful? To have a Heavenly Father that already knows everything we need to exist comfortably, nutritiously, warmly, securely in our lives. And God will provide all those, God will provide it all for those that put His kingdom first. It was used in the prayer tonight, Matthew 6.33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things. And what are all these things from verse 32? All the things the Gentiles seek after. And what are all the things the Gentiles seek after? All the things of life like food, drink, raiment, clothing. And then we can just keep right on going because Americans, oh, they're not content with food and and clothing at all. It's cars and houses and uh, second cars and other toys to play with. And God isn't promising to provide all that, but He'll provide everything you need because He already knows what you have need of. Right right here. Need. No worry. Judgment. We come to Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that ye be not judged. Judgment of others must be balanced and it must be righteous. That's what it means when it says, judge not that ye be not judged. That's verse 1. Instead of flinging that little soundbite around like all the effeminate Christians in this country do, why don't they read verses 2 through 5 to figure out what kind of judgment they shouldn't be judging? The first verse does not at all condemn all judgment because verse 6 is going to have some judgment in it. Jesus said to judge righteous judgment. You will be judged by the severity you show others is what verse 2 teaches. Sincere disciples correct their own sins before judging. That is, you look at the beam that is in your eye before you worry about the moat that is in another eye. You correct your own sins, and you will be judged by the severity you show others. So, judge not that ye be not judged. Do not judge rash, harsh, severe judgment, nor judgment where you're guilty of an equal crime or worse yourself. That's what Jesus has taught. For with what measure you mete out judgment to others, that's the measure I'll use to mete out judgment against you. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Judgment is assumed and expected, but it's limited. You know, the Christian world today will take Matthew 7, 1 and teach that we can't judge, shouldn't name names, shouldn't call heretics heretics, shouldn't exclude church members, blah, blah, blah. But Jesus tells exactly what we shouldn't do. 
We shouldn't judge overly, with over harshness or severity, and we shouldn't judge hypocritically when we ourselves are guilty. Fools. What does Matthew 7, 6 say about fools? Give not that which is holy unto dogs. I have isolated it here. It could be attached to the judgment of the first five verses, but I don't want it to get lost. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. That doesn't sound like Mahatma Gandhi. That sounds like the Lord Jesus Christ. Give not that which is holy unto dogs. Does he mean the four-legged kind or the two-legged kind? Does he mean the two-legged kind with a mitre on their heads? Oh yes, now you're getting warm. Now you know what he's talking about. You don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest thou be like unto him. You answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Would Jesus shut those fools up? If they asked him a question, a foolish and unlearned question trying to trap him, what would the Lord Jesus Christ do? Let me ask you a question. Well, since you can't answer my question, I don't think I'll answer your question. Thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Fools and scorners do not deserve truth, nor do they deserve help. So the Lord Jesus Christ teaches to leave them alone, their dogs and pigs. I love them. I love a king like this. And I love a preacher like this. First risk. Why don't we do this? First risk. They will trample the truth that you give them in their mud. If you can figure out what that means, you'll understand what Jesus meant by it. Because pigs are always creating their own mud. Second risk. They will twist what you say to tear you with it. Once you expose yourself by getting a few sentences out there, they will take those words and twist them to gouge you with them. Because they're not interested in truth. And so you do not give them anything in the way of truth or holiness. Solomon taught this same wisdom about avoiding scorners. And Paul taught the same wisdom about avoiding foolish and unlearned questions. Jesus just pulled it together as one of his 21 lessons in these three chapters. Prayer. Proverbs, I mean, Matthew chapter 7, excuse me, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. Prayer absolutely does work and obtains God's will. It may not be your timing. It may not be your way. But prayer works. Ask and it shall be given you. I believe the Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't fasted recently from chapter 6, then maybe you understand why 7 isn't working. If you haven't forgiven others from chapter 6, maybe you can understand why 7 isn't working. If you, if you allow fantasies in your life from chapter 5, or if you're angry without a cause at someone, maybe that's why 7 isn't working. It all fits together. It's all the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as logically true as thinking about a good father because that's the example Jesus gave us. But God is far better than any good father because we are still evil fathers. The golden rule is the highest rule of human conduct and Jesus includes that in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Everything in the Old Testament can be summed up by doing to others 
as you would like them to do to you, and it's attached to prayer. If you do not love your neighbor, the God that you say you love, but you really don't, is not going to answer your prayers. God answers based on love of others. That has already been taught in this chapter. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And if you're overly hard on others, and you do not forgive them, and you do not treat them according to the golden rule, then God will not hear your prayers. We're told the manner to pray. We're told not to pray to be publicly seen of men. And we're told about how to ask and what kind of confidence that we can have when we go to God that He is better than an earthly father in giving us what we desire. All in the Sermon on the Mount. But there's also some warnings and limitations in there if we don't forgive others. Strict and few. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be that go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life and few there be that find it. The straight gate, it's spelled this way. It's not spelled S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. If it is spelled S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T, Jonah, that means it's the shortest distance between two points. If it is spelled S-T-R-A-I-T, it's describing a straitjacket that doesn't allow you to move because it is very restrictive of you. It's like a straitjacket. But Jesus said, squeeze in there, enter in there, get in that straight gate. The road to destruction is wide and broad, and it's easy to go in there. It's easy. We don't want the easy way. We don't want the easy road. The road to destruction is popular with many in it. We don't care what they do. Let them all go to hell. We want the straight and narrow way with the Lord Jesus Christ. If some of them are looking at that wide gate and they see us and they ask us, show me, give me a reason of the hope that is within you. We'll tell them about the straight and narrow way. We'll tell them about the Sermon on the Mount. But we're not, we want to get into the straight gate. The road to life now and later, that is life now and life later, is strict like this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. The road to life now and later is rare with only a few. It's strict, it's rare, And there's only a few there, and Jesus told us that. So when we see that there are 2.2 billion Christians out of 7.2 billion people on this planet, someone doesn't know how to define terms. Strict and few. Are you willing? Are you ready? The high king of heaven is asking every one of us tonight. False teachers. Wolves, Jesus said, there are going to be wolves coming after you to devour you, and they're going to come looking like sheep. They're going to look like they belong in the church. But the proof of true church teachers sent by God is their fruit. Fruit here, in this type of a context, because Jesus talks about trees. In Matthew chapter 7, He says, Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Do you go to a thistle plant in order to get figs, or do you go to a fig tree? So you look at something that's bearing figs, and you want to go after that ministry. The fruit is doctrine. It's the doctrine of this sermon. The fruit is the emphasis of this sermon. Personal holiness and righteousness. How much worship 
is there in these three chapters? Not very much. It's personal and practical holiness and righteousness. And the effect. You are looking for the fruit of a ministry of men that teach the doctrine they teach, the emphasis of their ministries, the righteousness that is in their lives, the righteousness is in, that is in the lives of those they teach, and the effect of their ministry. Fruit is never appearance, it's never charisma, it's never popularity. False teachers do not bear the lives of this sermon. They don't live it themselves, and their followers don't live it. The strictness of the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's how you identify false teachers. But then there's false professors. Many give lip service to Jesus Christ as their Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many give lip service. Oh yes, they call Jesus Lord. They wear hats that say Jesus is Lord. They have bumper stickers that say Jesus is Lord. But we want more than that. And Jesus demands more than that. And Jesus tells us there better be more than that. The only measure that counts is their obedience. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will have even ministerial results. We've cast out devils in your name. We've preached in your name. But then I will profess unto them I never knew you. The only measure that counts is obedience. The workers of iniquity violating this sermon are doomed. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Well, how are we going to define iniquity? Not keeping the least of these or the greatest of these, the things that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's time for the invitation. Jesus drew a conclusion by virtue of his first word of therefore. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, what a sermon. It's got an invitation. It's got a decision point. We're at the moment of decision, my brothers and sisters. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Amen. You've got to be kidding me. He ends up with a house falling flat, and the fall of it was great? Amen. The Lord of glory came to this earth and preached 21 lessons to you in the most straightforward, simplistic, easy language to understand and to be convicted by all of it. He covered the breadth of his pure doctrine and gospel and religion. What will you do with his words? Hearing and doing this sermon is wise and foresightful because it protects you from the day to come because you lay a foundation for the day of judgment. Hearing and not doing this sermon is certain soul ruin. The issue is not practical salvation, 
but final salvation. Final salvation is what has been under consideration. It is depart from me, ye that work iniquity, is the preceding verse, to therefore. The issue is eternal life with Jesus Christ or the lake of fire. This is the greatest preacher in the history of the world with the greatest sermon. Jesus ended his sayings. Truth brings decision time. The Bible actually tells us, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings. Now it's decision time. The people used to their preachers were astonished. His doctrine was his teaching. They had never heard doctrine like this. Doctrine simply means teaching, his words and his rules. He taught with authority because he said, But I say unto you. He taught with authority as your Father in heaven. He's representing Almighty God on a personal basis. He taught with authority. Not as the hypocrites do. Good works defined by Jesus in abundance prove eternal life. They're good works. They're defined by Jesus and you better have lots of them. Prove eternal life. God sent His Son to preach the greatest sermon to men. Have you believed on Jesus Christ as the Son of God? Every single person in here Have you believed on Jesus Christ as the Son of God? Have you told God and have you told the Lord Jesus Christ that you believe indeed He was the Son of God that came into the world from His Father and ascended again to His Father and sits at the right hand of God? Every person come to terms with the greatest preacher, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Will you embrace His religion and live it fully each day? That is the bottom line for what Jesus gave us, the Sermon on the Mount. Please take your burgundy hymnals and sing number 502 with me. Burgundy hymnals number 502. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God? Every child in here, every teenager in here,